This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Goodbye, kids. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> if crowds of kids annoy you so much, maybe we shouldn't have started a school bus business. Or, you know, had four kids of our own. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm tired. We've been up since six hurting children. I don't know how they're so energetic in the morning. <laughs> Speaking of sleepyheads, we should probably get around to waking up our own. It's 7.10. Don't tell me. They're already showered and headed off to school because we're such great parents who raise them well. I wish. No, they weren't picking up. That's strange. I'm sure they're sleeping like logs. I'm jealous. Maybe see if the neighbors can wake them up? Good idea. Okay, let me just call and then we can get back to it. On the morning of January 6th, 1979, Tan Quen Chai and his wife, Mei Ying, set out to drive the school bus they owned and operated in their home city of Singapore. Their four young children were left at home, sleeping peacefully. Mei Ying called to wake them up like she did every day, but she got no response. They couldn't have known that while they were busy caring for others' children, their own kids were in the midst of a horrific nightmare. When the Tans returned home after 10 a.m., they probably assumed their one-room apartment would be empty. They were wrong. Oh my God, Quan Chai, the children, the... What? What about them? In the bathroom. No! This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our episode on the Tan Children Murders, one of Singapore's most gruesome unsolved crimes. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. The mysterious and violent 1979 murder of the four Tan children destroyed a family and sent shockwaves throughout Singapore, a city-state and sovereign island nation in Southeast Asia, just south of Malaysia. 
Today, it's known as a world leader in business and technology and routinely shows up on the United Nations list of countries with excellent access to healthcare, education, and personal safety. Of course, it's also been called Disneyland with the death penalty due to its strict laws and restrictions on media and civil liberties. Back in the 1970s, Singapore was still establishing itself as a sovereign nation. It had been founded as a British trading post in 1819 and only gained partial independence when it became part of Malaysia in 1963. Singapore split from Malaysia in 1965 and became fully independent. It was a melting pot of culture, with a population split between people of Chinese, Malay, and Indian origins. Because of this, four languages were, and continue to be commonly spoken in Singapore, English, Malay, Mandarin, and Tamil. There were around 2.4 million residents of Singapore in 1979, and among them was the Tan family. Tam Quen Chai was 38, and his wife Mei Ying was 30. Very little is known about their life before their children were born, but we can assume they'd been together at least since the late 1960s. By January 1979, the Tans had four kids, three boys and a girl. The oldest boy was 10-year-old Kok Pong, followed by Kok Hing, age 8. Next was Kok Soon, who was 6, and the youngest was the Tan's only daughter, 5-year-old Chin Ni. The boys were all students at Bendemeer Road Primary School, while Chin Ni was in her second year at a local kindergarten. Four children was probably a lot to handle, which might explain why, after Chin Ni's birth in 1973 or 1974, Mei Ying chose to undergo a sterilization procedure. Mrs. Tan, the doctor will be with you in a moment. Mei Ying, are you sure about this? It's not like I have much of a choice. But they say it's practically irreversible. I just want you to- I don't know that what we want matters. Not to this government. Anyway, we have four beautiful kids. Maybe a fifth one would have ruined it all. <laughs> Mei Ying's fallopian tubes were cut and tied, preventing another pregnancy. Maybe this was a personal choice, but Mei Ying almost certainly felt pressured by her country's government to stop having children. After their 1965 independence, Singapore had a population problem. Simply put, people were having too many kids for a new country where poverty and overcrowding was a serious issue. The political party in power, the People's Action Party, believed that only healthy families with access to education and money should be allowed to reproduce in order to promote social progress. To that end, abortion and sterilization were legalized in 1970, right around the time Mei Ying had her first child, Kok Pong. There were several other incentives set up to shape population control. For example, Women with low levels of income and education were offered a week off and 10,000 Singapore dollars to get sterilized. That comes out to about 15,000 US dollars in today's money. A national government promoted campaign called Stop It Two encouraged families to have no more than two children. Posters showed two smiling kids and lauded the stability and simplicity of a small family. But the reality of Stop It Two was far less cheerful. Penalties were enforced to make sure people really did stop it too. For example, female workers were no longer offered maternity leave if they had a third child. 
Tax deductions for children only applied to the first two born, and hospital fees for childbirth increased substantially for each additional birth. More shockingly, priority spots at the best schools were reserved for children of parents who had been sterilized before the age of 40. It's a stunning example of a government meddling in its citizens' reproductive rights. And there must have been a lot of pressure on Mei Ying, who had four children during this period. Mei Ying finally got sterilized after her fourth child, daughter Chin Ni. Chin Ni was the latest addition to the Tan family, who all shared tight quarters in a one-room apartment. They lived in government-subsidized housing in the neighborhood of Geelong Baru, near the south of the island of Singapore. They shared a flat on the fourth floor of Block 58, one of many housing units that sprang up across Singapore in the 20th century. Designed by the government's Housing and Development Board, the HDB blocks were meant to eradicate the slums and provide affordable housing for poor and working-class Singaporeans. The blocks also enforced an ethnic quota to avoid segregation. Each building's population roughly represented Singapore's mix of ethnicities. A step toward diversity that almost seems progressive, given that this was the same government that heavily encouraged women to get sterilized. As of 2015, 82% of Singaporeans still live in HDB housing, which has expanded to include nicer units for the middle and upper classes. But in 1979, the Tans only had one room and a bathroom to share. Still, they made it work and engaged with the community surrounding them. Many living in these apartments had been uprooted from traditional village lifestyles, and they tried to carry that spirit with them to their new HDB housing. People congregated in the corridors as children played, and some entrepreneurial tenants even set up shops in the hall to sell candy and nuts to their neighbors. We can't say for sure that the Tans building was exactly like that, but from what we know, it does sound like an open, inviting environment. An older woman named Yam Yin Tim often sat out in the hallway and visited with the Tan children. Children, watch out with that ball! <laughs> Just because I'm sitting at the end of the hall doesn't mean I'm your goalie. Yam Yin Tim wasn't the only friendly face. A Malaysian neighbor visited the Tans almost every day to use the phone. The Tan kids grew so close to him that they began to call him uncle. Whoa, whoa. Not all at once, kiddos. <laughs> I think they might be more excited to see their fake uncle than their real one. Well, I'm just as happy to see them. Mind if I use your phone? Go right ahead. Oh, before I forget, would you mind picking up some 4D lottery tickets for me this week? I can give you my numbers. Of course. Kids, quiet down so he can hear. It seemed like a community of decent people and a good support system for two working parents. Quen Chai and Mei Ying had four kids at home, but their work lives were all about the children, too. The Tans ran a bus service that ferried kids to school every morning. It's heartbreakingly ironic that they were caring for other people's children while their own kids were the ones who were truly in danger. What time is it? Six. We've got to get going. Should we wake the children? No, let them sleep. I could watch them do it forever. They're so adorable. Uh, but we've got other kids waiting for us. Much louder ones. 
I'll call back here after our first shift to make sure ours get up. On the morning of January 6, 1979, the Tans set off on their minibus at 6.35 a.m. to shuttle their first round of children. Around 7.10 a.m., Mei Ying stopped to call home and wake up her kids, her usual custom. She called three times, but no one ever picked up. It doesn't seem like this bothered her too much, and it's likely this had happened before. Mei Ying then called a female neighbor instead. Morning. Sorry to bother you so early, but would you mind knocking on our door? I just want to make sure the kids are up. Of course. I'll get them moving. Hope work's going well. Talk soon. Kids, your mom sent me over. It's 8 a.m., and if you're not awake, you better get a move on, okay? Nobody answered the door, and it seems the neighbor didn't inquire further or report back to Mei Ying. Of course, this was in 1979 before cell phones, so maybe she knew she wouldn't reach the Tans. After all, their job meant they were on a moving bus all morning. And again, it seems like the Tans' usual routine was to let their kids wake up and get ready on their own, so perhaps nothing seemed too unusual. The Tans finished up their rides and returned home after 10 a.m. They were probably tired and looking forward to a few hours to themselves. When they entered their one-room apartment, they probably didn't sense that anything was amiss. Work was over, the apartment was quiet, and their kids were off at school. Or so they thought. They still hadn't realized that their children were actually still at home. And they wouldn't realize it until they stepped into their bathroom and saw the horrors that awaited them. Mei Ying found the mutilated bodies of her four precious children on the bathroom floor. The tan children were dressed in t-shirts and pants, indicating they'd gotten dressed for school before tragedy struck. Horrifyingly, their bodies were piled on top of each other, and each child was individually covered in over 20 slashes from a sharp weapon. Their youngest child, five-year-old daughter Chin Ni, had wounds all over her face. Their oldest boy, 10-year-old Kok Pung, had perhaps the most gruesome injury. His right arm was nearly entirely severed. To the police, this indicated that the poor child had tried to fight back. It was so shocking that it was later described in a 1979 issue of the Singapore Straits Times as the country's most horrific crime of the decade. Shortly afterwards, a squad from Singapore's Criminal Investigation Department arrived to investigate the scene. Acting Deputy Superintendent Gan Boon Leong took the lead on what was very quickly deemed to be a murder investigation. No sign of forced entry, sir. Whoever did this either had a key or knew the door would have been unlocked. Strange. Nothing in the room's been ransacked or stolen. Those poor kids' backpacks are still on the table, like they're just waiting for them to take them to school. Keep it together. No possible neighbors who overheard anything? Right now, it seems like our only witnesses are the Tan's pet fish. Whoever committed this atrocity certainly knew how to get out without a trace. What about a possible weapon? There's a meat chopper missing from the kitchen, and the Tan's say they owned a dagger that's missing now too. Sounds like we've got an idea about what weapons the killers used. Over here. I think this is blood in the kitchen sink. Great. Get some samples to the lab. This is a start, at least. The next day, January 7th, the Tans endured the task of burying their children at Singapore's Chua Chukang Cemetery. They were buried with some of their beloved books and toys. 
Reportedly, Mei Ying was so despondent that she lost consciousness multiple times as each child was lowered into the ground. As the Tans tried to make sense of the tragedy that had just changed their lives, a dark cloud fell over their apartment complex. Children once played freely there, but now parents kept them locked up inside for protection. They even walked them to school. What had once been a community was now a place of anxious isolation. After all, it was very possible that the killer could live right next door. Police latched onto the idea that these murders were planned by an acquaintance of the Tans, maybe even as some sort of revenge killing. The lack of forced entry, the fact that nothing was stolen or ransacked, and evidence that the murderer cleaned up after themselves all indicated that this was a carefully planned kill. Now, the Tans were ordinary working-class people just trying to get by while running their school bus business. They weren't rich, powerful, connected, or highly visible public figures. It doesn't seem like there'd be much to gain from killing their children. So what inspired someone to plan such a horrific murder? Police could only guess at the motive, but they did have a possible clue about the killer's methods. They learned that Mei Ying lost her apartment key shortly before the murders. Mrs. Tan, do you have any idea where you lost the key or who could have taken it? Did you replace your locks? I have no idea. I suppose we should have changed the locks, but uh, we never did. We don't know much more about the lost keys, but we have to consider the possibility that they were stolen perhaps with the intention to get into the apartment at a later date. Why wouldn't the Tans get new locks on their doors? Well, they regularly left their children at home alone, so it seems a necessary precaution. True, but it also seems like these HDB buildings fostered a sense of community. Maybe unlocked doors were more common than you would think. And maybe the Tans thought if anyone suspicious should come to their door while they were gone, their neighbors would take care of it. Police had no suspects in mind yet but they did have two potential missing murder weapons, a chopper from the kitchen and a dagger from elsewhere in the apartment. They also had blood in the kitchen sink that suggested the killer or killers tried to clean themselves off or the weapons before leaving. It was a promising start, but the investigation fizzled on the evidence front. The weapons were never found, and DNA analysis wasn't advanced enough in 1979 to yield any results from the bloodstains. Uh, incidentally, the police had to clarify a misconception from the crime scene. The initial news reports erroneously suggested that strands of hair were found in 10-year-old Koch Pung's hands, perhaps belonging to the murderer. The thought was that Koch Pung had ripped the hair from his killer's head to fight him off. However, Singapore's police spokesman, Tio Han Wei, later told the Straits Times newspaper on January 15th that no hair had been found. It's a misconception about the case that endures to this day in different articles and news sources, despite the police's denial. Other sources say that it was actually Kok Pung's own hair, but the validity of that is unclear. Now, hair sampling isn't always the most accurate way of getting biological evidence, but at least they would have a biological sample to jumpstart their hunt for the killer. A couple of days after the murder, the police thought they'd found their first major clue when they heard that a witness had spoken to a Chinese newspaper about seeing the killer. Or as the witness put it, killers. We'll return to our story in just a moment. 
And now, back to our story. On January 7, 1979, Tan Quen Chai and Tan Mei Ying returned from their job operating a school bus to find their four children dead in the bathroom in their one-room Singapore apartment. Their three sons and only daughter were slashed up by a chopper and a dagger, both taken from the Tan's apartment. The weapons were nowhere to be found, and very little evidence was available at the crime scene. So Singapore's criminal investigation department must have been thrilled when they heard that a witness, who did not want his identity disclosed, had spoken to Chinese newspaper Ming Pao about the morning of the crime. Tell us what you saw. This is all on the record apart from your identity. It was around 7 a.m., and I happened to be parking my car across the street from the building. I saw a couple enter the building and head upstairs. They seemed a bit suspicious, so I stuck around. Can you describe them? A man and a woman, maybe, in their late 20s? If the police want me to help identify suspects in the lineup, I certainly could. Then what happened? Around 30 minutes later, they both left the building and walked in opposite directions. Both were holding objects wrapped in newspapers, and I'm pretty sure the man had blood on his face and shirt. Why didn't you tell the police this? I... well, I was afraid of the repercussions. It wasn't until I read about the killings that I began to feel very upset and sorry about the whole thing. The presence of two killers could explain how meticulous and orderly the killings were. The two objects wrapped in newspapers would definitely seem to reflect the police's belief that there were two murder weapons that were removed from the crime scene. But a few days later, police revealed the report was an unreliable hoax. It's unknown how they came to this conclusion, but as we've seen with other crimes, members of the public love to feel like they're part of a case, even if it means making up wild stories. This was a dead end, so police would instead have to question over a hundred neighbors, family members, and potential witnesses. You'd think a network like that would guarantee results, but instead the CID's investigators would find themselves chasing after frustrating rumors and unreliable witnesses. It was an incredibly difficult case to work on, especially since the public was very invested in finding out who killed these innocent children. Quen Chai and his wife, Mei Ying, were among those questioned first, but they had alibis. They had been out on their school bus route all morning. On January 8th, two days after the murder, the police questioned two adult women. There's almost no information about who they were or why police took them in, all we know is that they were released shortly afterward. It's unknown whether any information they shared helped with the case. The police were certain that because there was no forced entry, the killer must have had a key or gotten the kids to unlock the door. They felt that the children would only have unlocked the door for someone they knew. So they paid special attention to the Tan's neighbors. Police turned to Yam Yin Tim, the Tan's 68-year-old female neighbor who often sat out in the hallway while the building's children played. It doesn't seem like they investigated her as a suspect, just as a witness. Yam Yin Tim would have been the best person to catch a glimpse of the killer, but she hadn't been at her usual seat that morning. Is there anything you can tell us about the morning of January 6th? Oh, I'm afraid not. I would have most probably seen anyone coming out of the Tan's flat had I not been washing my hair that morning. I so wish I hadn't now. Those kids were so nice, so obedient and lovely. They always visited me. 
I'll miss them terribly. The person most likely to see the killer happened to be washing her hair. The police then pursued another rumor, that someone in the building next door had seen the killer in a window. Officer, this is just what I heard. It may be a rumor. I heard that a man in the building next door saw something. He lives on the sixth floor, and he could see into the Tan's apartment. What did he see? I guess it was a man struggling with a little girl. That could have been Chin Ni, right? Apparently he says he thought it was just a father beating his child and didn't really think anything of it. I need any information you can remember about who told you this. I'm afraid I don't know anything else. Now, this clue sounds almost too good to be true, but police never found this mystery witness in the neighboring building. It must have been frustrating that the most intriguing pieces of evidence were all either tall tales or closely guarded secrets that were just out of the police's reach. I have to wonder, if this mystery witness really saw something, why not come forward with the information that could help with the case? Well, these vicious murders traumatized the neighborhood, and it was implied that the killer was a local. Maybe the neighbor didn't want to risk being attacked, too. Okay, but if you see someone beating a child, why not call the police? Well, sadly, attitudes about corporal punishment were probably different back then. I imagine that today, a neighbor might not be so quick to ignore it. True. And of course, maybe a bit of bystander effect was happening too. This man wasn't even in the same apartment complex, so maybe he assumed that if a situation were happening, a closer neighbor would help. And remember, it's possible this was only a rumor, just like the one about the hair in Kok Pong's hand, or the hoax about the bloodstained couple. The police also received a tip from a source that was much closer to the Tans, Mei Ying's brother. Her brother mentioned to the media that this could have been the result of an illegal tontine scheme. A tontine is a group investment plan that sidesteps traditional banking. Though it was technically illegal, plenty of people still participated. In a tontine, each member contributes to a money pool. At the end of a cycle, the members receive dividends based on how much money they put in. The money was often used for investments that increased the capital, so the hope was that you'd get more money back than what you'd put in. If one member died, their shares would be split among the surviving members. So if you were in a tontine, it may have been your financial interest to hope that a couple of members dropped dead. Well, this wouldn't be the first time violence was linked to a tontine. Just five years earlier, there was a gruesome tontine-related murder in Singapore. In 1974, the wealthy madam, Kwek Ong, was the head of a tontine group. Among the investors was her sister-in-law, Sim Ju Kyo. Oh, good morning, Liang. What a lovely surprise. Ju Kyo, we haven't seen you at the house lately, so I thought I'd stop by. I've just been so busy lately. Busy? Coming up with the $2,000 you owe me, I hope? I wish you wouldn't be so nasty about it. I'm not being nasty. I'm simply asking that you pay me what I'm owed. But we're family! Family is family, but business is business. And nobody gets in the way of my business. Not even you, you sorry excuse for a sister-in-law. <gasps> When Madame Quek went to her sister-in-law's house to collect the 2,000 Singapore dollars she was owed, 
the two women argued. It escalated and ended in Sim Ju Kyo strangling her sister-in-law. In a gruesome twist, Madame Quek's body was found in several locations because Sim had dismembered her in an effort to get rid of the evidence. Her body parts were found in three different locations across the city. The murder probably wouldn't have happened if the women weren't in the Tontine. So it's plausible that maybe the Tans got into some Tontine trouble themselves. In some Tontines, parents could name their children as the beneficiaries to the dividends. Since children usually outlive their parents, it was a way to keep the money within the family for longer. However, if the children were to die, the parents would be cut out of the Tontine. If the Tans were in a Tontine, and if they had named their children as the beneficiaries, then killing them would be an effective way to cut the Tans out and redistribute their shares among the rest of the members. Someone in their group could have killed them in order to have their shares distributed to the rest of the group. Well, that's a lot of ifs. And there's no evidence that the Tans were part of a Tontine. In the press, they insisted that they had never wronged anybody in their social circle. It's unclear what Mei Ying's brother's motive was in revealing this, and we don't know what his relationship with his sister was like. If it was friendly, maybe he was just trying to help come up with some reasonable course of investigation to make sense of the tragedy. If they had a bad relationship, perhaps he was trying to implicate them in illegal activities as a way to deflect public sympathy for the case. Ultimately, all we know is that the Tans were apparently not involved in any illegal activities. January 14, 1979, over a week had passed since the murders, and though police had interrogated over 100 people, they were still no closer to catching the killer or figuring out why someone would harm a simple working-class family like the Tans. All they had to help in their hunt were vague rumors and strange stories about witnesses and suspects that never seemed to materialize. That's probably why they poured all their resources into following a new lead that seemed both promising and realistic. The lead came from a local taxi driver. It was the morning of the murder, around 8 a.m., I believe. I was driving along Block 96 when I picked up a strange passenger. Can you describe them for me? He was young in his twenties, I suppose. His left side was stained with blood and I think he was carrying a knife. You think? I heard a metallic clang on the side of my taxi door when he got off on Lavender Street a little bit later. The police took the taxi driver's description to Quen Chai, hoping he'd recognize this possible suspect. And incredibly, he did. The driver's description almost perfectly matched the Tan's young Malaysian neighbor, a man who the kids referred to as uncle, and who visited the Tans almost every day to use their phone. We should note here that an initial newspaper report claimed this uncle, whose real name is unknown, was a blood relative of the Tans. However, later reports indicate that he was merely a family friend, and that his nickname of uncle was due to how close he was with the Tans. Uncle was arrested and placed in a lineup of suspects where the taxi driver identified him. He was then held and questioned by the police for two weeks. Uncle was close to the Tans, and it seems like they had a good relationship, so what could his motive be? Well, a January 14th article in the New Nation newspaper quoted reliable, though unnamed, sources and indicated that the motive came from a disagreement over lottery tickets. 
Apparently, Uncle was a regular player of 4D, a local lottery. He asked Mei Ying to buy him some tickets and had given her the numbers to play. Later, when the winning tickets were drawn, Uncle learned that he had given Mei Ying winning numbers. But there was a problem. Mei Ying had forgotten to buy his tickets. Uncle later discovered his winnings would have been between 40 and 50,000 Singapore dollars. That's between 62 and 76,000 American dollars in 2018 money. Surely a staggering amount for someone living in cramped government subsidized housing. Excuse me, you sold someone a winning 4D ticket here recently, right? Yes, it was very exciting. Big day for the store. How much was the prize worth? <laughs> Lottery's over, buddy. Some lucky guy already has that money now. I'm just curious. Very curious. Oh, I think it was somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars. Fifty... fifty thousand dollars? I know, right? If I had that kind of money, I... I don't even know what I'd do, but it would change my whole life. Yes, it would be life-changing. Oh, well, there's always next time, right? Hey. Are you okay? He apparently also found out that someone had claimed the prize. The New Nation posits that Uncle killed the Tan Kids as revenge for Mei Ying either forgetting to buy his tickets or buying them and claiming the prize. We should note that the New Nation article insists the information comes from reliable sources, but we can't be fully sure of that. Well, it seems like a plausible motive but the police released Uncle after two weeks, claiming they lacked the evidence to link him to the murder. The man known as Uncle soon moved out of the Block 58 apartments, and the trail of the killer went cold. The month sped along, and soon it was time for the Chinese New Year on January 28, 1979, exactly three weeks after the murder. The beginning of the year of the goat was undoubtedly a festive time in Singapore, though the Tans weren't celebrating. But someone wanted to make sure they weren't left out of the holiday. Around the Chinese New Year, the Tans received a letter. What's that? It's a New Year card. I guess the war really does go on. I totally forgot about the holiday. Open it. <gasps> what is it? What's in the letter? You have to read this. When the Tans received a Chinese New Year card at the end of January, they probably thought it was from a well-meaning friend or relative. But when they opened it, it featured a picture of children playing happily, and the written note was anything but friendly. Now you can have no more offspring. <laughs> the card was signed, The Murderer. This may have been a sick joke by a neighbor or someone familiar with the case. After all, the Tan's address was pretty much public knowledge after all the news stories. However, there are elements that suggest this card was no mere prank. First of all, it referred to Quen Chai and Mei Ying as Ah Chai and Ah Ong. Those were the Tan's nicknames. So whoever wrote the letter was presumably somewhat close to the Tans, or close enough to their social circle to know their nicknames. But even more chilling is the statement that the Tans couldn't have any more children. Not wouldn't, but couldn't. That strongly indicates that whoever wrote the card knew about Mei Ying's sterilization procedure years earlier. 
It was a vicious taunt that added insult to injury. Not only were the Tan children dead, but it would be very difficult for their parents to start over with new children. It's unknown whether the police investigated the letter for fingerprints. Even if we assume that they did, they must have reached a dead end there too. Their whole investigation seemed to constantly get railroaded by rumors, hoaxes, and lack of physical evidence. Whoever killed the Tan children had gotten away with it, and now it was up to Quen Chai and Mei Ying to try to rebuild their shattered existence. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now our story continues. In January 1979, Tan Mei Ying and her husband, Quen Chai, endured the unimaginable after their four young children were brutally slaughtered. Over the rest of the year, they tried to go back to their normal lives as school bus operators, but their grief proved to be too much. Honey, what's wrong? I... I just... I can't drive this bus. Not anymore. I love these children, but every time I hear them laugh or pray or simply be, I think about ours. Maybe it's time we gave this up. In January 1980, a year after the murders, a reporter from the Straits Times checked in on the Tans. They had recently given up their school bus business and gone to work for a PVC bag machining firm. I couldn't concentrate on my driving because I kept thinking of them. For the sake of the school children who took our bus, we gave up. We didn't want to endanger them. But Tan said the sound of children playing outside their apartment was sometimes too much to bear. But at the same time, they didn't move away, and they kept their children's toys and clothes around. Perhaps the only thing worse than being reminded of their loss would have been to get rid of all the evidence of their former lives as parents. Our home is now four walls of emptiness. I see the children's things are still here. I don't mean to pry, but perhaps if you donated them or... We will never part with these things. Life has never been the same. We miss them dearly. Would you consider having more children? We would like to adopt two children, preferably a boy and a girl, because my wife has been sterilized. The Tans knew their only hope for more children would be adoption. Guan Jai, I know we've talked about it, but do you think it's time for us to make an appointment with the social welfare department? I just want you to be sure about this. It could be a long process. People have been reading about us for a year. They'll know who we are. We'll beg them to consider us. If that's what you want, then let's make an appointment. Is it what you want too? Of course. I love you. I'm so sorry, but there are simply no children available at the moment. We'll take any child you've got. I know, and of course, I feel your pain and will keep you at the top of the list should anything change. But for now, there's nothing I can do. I don't understand. Surely there's some child who needs a good home. Again, I'm so sorry. That seems a little strange. 
Why weren't there any available babies in a country that was fighting overpopulation for the past two decades? Well, the Stop at Two campaign was a little too effective. After 1975, Singapore's population replacement rate dipped below unity. Simply put, not enough people were being born to replace those who died. Maybe sterilizing a generation of women wasn't a good idea, but there were other factors. For example, women were now achieving more success at school and in the workforce, which meant that some no longer had time or desire to be mothers. Ironically, the government behind Stop It Too would later enact a new campaign in the mid-80s, the Have Three or More campaign. Meanwhile, Mei Ying visited doctor after doctor, hoping to find a way to undo her previous sterilization. It was a fruitless endeavor, until a new gynecologist, Dr. T.H. Lean, instilled the tans with new hope. Dr. Lean, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't adopt. I've been to other doctors, and all of them say they can't undo my sterilization. They say I won't ever get pregnant. I don't know if you know who I am, but... I have followed your case. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. It's been a hard few years. I know another child can't undo what's been done to me, but... I think it would be a start. Well, there's a process called tubal reanastomosis. Basically, we untie the fallopian tubes you had tied and reattach them. Will it succeed? There's no 100% guarantee, to say nothing of possible pregnancy complications, but it's our best shot. (sighs) If you want to take some time, maybe discuss it with your husband. Let's do it. Thanks to Dr. Lin's hard work, Mei Ying's fallopian tubes were reconnected, and in April of 1983, a little over four years after the murders, she received some amazing news. Mrs. Tan, you're pregnant. On December 30th, 1983, at the age of 35, Tan Mei Ying gave birth to a healthy seven-pound baby boy. The Tans may have endured unimaginable losses, but with the birth of their son, they finally had their chance to raise a new family. There now, get some sleep. Mommy's here. The Tan children were murdered almost 30 years ago, and for all intents and purposes, the case has gone completely cold. They live on as a dark chapter in Singapore's past. And even today, you can find toys and trinkets placed on their graves at the Chua Chukang Cemetery. The Singapore police seem to have let the case go, and if they've found any new facts or clues, they haven't released them publicly. However, we live in a new era of technology and information sharing. So clues about the killer can come from the unlikeliest of places. In January of 2017, a commenter on a YouTube video on the murders posted a comment claiming a personal connection to the murders. The commenter claimed to live in Singapore and said that their mother grew up in the Geelong Baru neighborhood around the time of the murders. The mother told the commenter that everyone who was around at the time 
knew that the man known as Uncle killed the Tan children. The story echoes the news articles from 1979, which said that Uncle killed the children as revenge for the Tans either forgetting to buy his winning lottery ticket or for stealing the prize money for themselves. A few new wrinkles are added, however. For example, the commenter states that shortly after the lottery incident, the Tans bought their school bus and started their business. Well, we don't know how long they'd been running the business before their children died. If it had been a while, that would mean the lottery incident took place months or years before the murders. I could buy the uncle holding onto a grudge for a long time and letting it build up before he did something about it, though. That's true. Another new twist from the YouTube comment is the supposed fact that Uncle was in a street gang and the Tans were involved in illegal drug activities. Well, drug offenses can lead to the death penalty in Singapore. The theory is that the Tans knew Uncle killed their children, but couldn't report it to the police because they'd be worried that Uncle would rat them out. The commenter also links those facts to the fact that elderly complex resident Yam Yin Tin happened to be washing her hair that morning instead of sitting at her usual spot in the hallway. Uh, allegedly, this could have been an excuse to avoid reporting Uncle's activities to the police. Well, that's certainly possible. If Yam Yun Tin thought Uncle was in a street gang, she probably would have wanted to avoid getting involved. Otherwise, she may have risked becoming a target herself. All in all, the YouTube comment does seem to shine a light on an inside connection to a long unsolved case. However, the commenter also claims that people in the Tans building witnessed the presence of the children's ghosts after their murder, so maybe you can't trust everything you read on the internet. Now that we've covered everything we know about the murder of the Tan children, it's time to ask who killed them and why. Our list of suspects is short and mysterious. There's the blood-stained couple that a witness saw exiting the building with two parcels, but that turned out to be a hoax. There was the rumor of a neighbor seeing a man beating Chin Ni from his sixth floor window, but again, the police never managed to find the person who claimed to see it. What about Mei Ying's brother's idea that the murders were the result of the Tans wronging somebody in a Tantin banking scheme? Well, the Tans denied it, and it was never seriously investigated. The only thing that could support that theory is the fact that Tantin-related crimes had happened before. There's also the Tans school bus. If Uncle was suspicious that they bought it through stealing his lottery prize money, it could indicate that it was a purchase beyond their modest means. Could they have used dividends from a tontine to buy the bus instead? Even if that were true, it doesn't mean it led to their deaths. Maybe they just happened on a good banking scheme that worked out in their favor. And again, the Tans have denied it. What about the Chinese New Year card? Whoever sent it knew Mei Ying couldn't have any more children. So could her sterilization be a motive for the murders? Maybe. But it would be an odd motive in 1970 Singapore, where the government practically forced mothers to get sterilized. So Mei Ying's sterilization was likely seen as a commonplace event, not as some shocking act that deserved punishment. Exactly. And while the card could have come from the killer, it could also have been from a sick prankster who had nothing to do with the murders. The suspect that makes the most sense is the mysterious Malaysian uncle who knew the family well and came over to use their phone almost every day. The taxi driver who allegedly picked him up in the morning of the murders was able to describe him well enough so that Quen Chai could ID him 
And the driver also picked Uncle out of a police lineup of suspects. Uncle would know the tan schedule and how to get in and out of their apartment without leaving much evidence behind. Maybe he was even the one who found or stole the house key Mei Ying lost before the murders. And he also had the Tan children's trust. I can only imagine one of those poor kids opening the door that morning and letting their friendly uncle in for a daily visit that took a deadly turn. What would his motive be? Well, if the story about the lottery tickets were true and uncle really thought the Tans made him lose out on a life-changing amount of money, perhaps he formed a vicious grudge against them. He knew that between their home and work life, the Tans loved children. What better way to hurt them than to kill theirs? Well, obviously, that's not a rational person's train of thought, but maybe Uncle was unstable. Unfortunately, we don't know too much about his background, so we can only speculate. Still, with everything we know, I think the most obvious suspect remains Uncle. A man who felt like part of the Tan family, but who may have been the one responsible for tearing it apart. Ten Quen Chai and his wife, Mei Ying, were a couple trying to do their best as partners, parents, and business owners. Their lives weren't easy, but their family unit managed to survive their country's intense and rapidly changing laws about parenthood. The danger that destroyed their lives didn't come from outside forces, however. It came from someone close, someone who knew their lives and knew how to hurt them most. But if Mei Ying could be a mother again, years after her sterilization and the murder of her four children, then perhaps there's still hope that someone will one day discover the identity of the Tan children's killer. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, Dan Velasquez, Kimlin Tran, Jen Wong, Rebecca Thomas, Eddie Lee, and Brian Kim. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McGinsey and Carter Roy. 